Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. On this day of 1570, Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church um, in Wittenberg, Germany. And all of this sparked what we now know as the Protestant Reformation against the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Luther, and we talked about Luther when we began this series in Romans, um, he was a, a monk in the Catholic Church, and for the majority of his adult life, he had become very disillusioned with his faith. Because he had settled in for a faith that was based upon works and everything I could do and everything I could learn and whether I could earn God's pleasure. And he was also at this point becoming disillusioned with the Roman Catholic uh, Church's teachings and where the leadership was going, especially in his homeland um, of Germany. And one of his biggest problems was with this guy. And you'll see his, uh, you'll see his picture come up in a minute. His, his name was Johann Tetzel. All right, Johann Tetzel. Um, and so you'll see that picture of Tetzel come up there on your screen in just a second. Now, Tetzel was a Catholic priest or a Catholic friar who got promoted through the ranks to be really high up in the Catholic church. And he became known as the Grand Commissioner of Indulgences. Okay. Um, now, in the Catholic Church, that was a really high position. But the biggest problem that Luther had with Tetzel, which, by the way, I think Tetzel really missed an opportunity in life. All right? If you've got a name like Tetzel, how do you, how do, you do anything but make pretzels in your life, right? You are just born with that. I mean, that Tetzel's pretzels, it just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? Right? And he's in Germany. So, the, you know, Germany, that's where pretzels in Bavaria, that's where pretzels were formed. It's like, and it's bigger than Auntie Anne's. That sounds way better. Tetzel's pretzels. I could see kiosks and malls everywhere, partnerships with Orange Julius and all kinds of stuff, right? But he didn't. He didn't do that. He wanted to be a minister there in the Catholic Church. And he rose to this rank of being the governor over all of the indulgences. What is an indulgence, you might ask? Well, an indulgence is part of the Catholic teaching even today. It's a, it's, it goes deeper than this, but the easiest way to explain it is an indulgence is something that you do to cover your sin or cover that temporary guilt of your sin after you sin. Jesus covers our sins on the cross, but an indulgence is something that kind of covers the guilt and the shame of the sin. Then you have to do usually something like penance or ask forgiveness or something like that. And you have to be cleansed of all of those sins that once you trust in Christ, he covers your sin guilt, but you still have to pay for all of those by some action or something like that. And the Catholic tradition teaches that you can earn indulgences while you're still alive by doing good works or by saying confession or by doing penance or something like that. This is also the idea that when you die, if you have not had all of your sins, all of that guilt sin that you carry with you, it hasn't all been cleared, you go to purgatory or purgatory to have all of those sins purged from you so that you can go to heaven. So Tetzel saw a great fundraising opportunity for the church because at this time the church was kind of suffering from uh, a lack of funds and he found this great opportunity to raise funds. No, he did not start selling pretzels. He started selling these indulgences. See, up until now, indulgences were something that you earned by your works and a Catholic priest would lay out, here's what you need to do. But Tetzel said, hey, we'll start selling indulgences. So he developed certificates of indulgence that you could buy and you could go to the church, you could buy these certificates of indulgence. And what it was basically saying to the Catholic worshipers was, you can buy your way into heaven. You can buy forgiveness of sins, which flew in the face of what Luther had, become, had come to understand as he was studying scripture. 
You could buy certificates. And then also for loved ones who had just lost someone dear to them that they knew that they were in purgatory, Tetzel began to teach and to preach that you could buy indulgences in their name to get them out of purgatory and on to heaven faster. Luther, who had totally had his life transformed while he was in Rome, studying Romans, and found that salvation does not come by my works, it comes by Jesus Christ, had a real problem with that. So, on October 31st, 1517, Luther went to the door of that castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed 95 problems that he had with Catholic teaching and Catholic doctrine, saying how they had skewed and how they had gone away from the faith. He nailed those there, and they basically came under five different headings, and he said, and this is what we call the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, he said that everything about faith, our faith, our Christianity, our our way to heaven does not depend on us. It depends on God alone. He preached this doctrine of sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. Luther protested the idea that the words of the popes and the edicts could carry the same weight as the word of God. And he said that scripture alone is sufficient to be our authority in faith and practice. He also upheld the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone. Luther said that scripture states that salvation is a gift of God through his unmerited favor, not by any works of humanity that we can do and not by any amount of indulgences that we could purchase. And he said, because salvation is solo Christo, it is through Christ alone. That all the work necessary for salvation was done by Jesus Christ when he was on the cross and that humanity, you and I, have no spiritually redeeming value to offer, which means even our best works are like filthy rags and only Jesus' blood on the cross was enough to give us our redemption and save us from our sins. He also said that we should hold to a doctrine of solia deo gloria, a gloria, which means the glory of God alone. Luther believed that everything and everyone was created for the glory of God alone and that every work of God was done to point to his glory. So in salvation, if salvation could be earned through our works or our penance or our buying of indulgences, then humanity could claim some of this glory and it would go against the glory of God alone. But I saved the second sola for last today because it's this sola that we're going to look at this morning. It's sola fide which means by faith alone. Luther preached that salvation could only be given to a person through the sinner's faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work upon the cross, that all the good deeds and all the thoughts could not stack up to outweigh our sin. There's nothing you and I can do, no situation we could be born into, no amount of money that somebody could give in our name or no amount of money you could give, although if you want to try, Graceway Church would be a great place you could try to give your money. I'm just teasing. Sort of. Anyway, um, <clears throat> that just derailed everything, didn't it? He said that sin could not be conquered with a sum of money and a fistful of indulgences. The salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so when he nailed those 95 theses to the door, it began this reformation that we still, that still echoes today. What I find so powerful for us this morning is that when Luther himself wrote these theses, he was saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone while on pilgrimage in Rome studying scripture alone, this very text that we are reading today. And the five solas, the five ideas of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone came from this very text that we're looking at today. He said that this text 
verses 21 through 31 of Romans chapter 3 is the very heart of the Reformation. It is what sparked the entire spirit of Reformation because it was this text that led Luther to salvation in Jesus Christ. It led Luther away from trusting in Luther to trusting in Jesus Christ. Now here's where I have to stop and marvel at the beauty of expository preaching because back when we committed to doing this series, I did not know that we were going to land on this text on this day. Literally 504 years ago to the day, we see the power of this text coming to fruition. It's like we're literally reaching back through history and touching that today. So understand the power of what we're getting ready to look at this morning. So are you ready now that of what your appetite? Let's, let's get into it. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. It has been attested by the law and the prophets. That's by scripture alone, sola scriptura. The righteousness of God is through faith. That's faith alone, sola fide. In Jesus Christ, that's Christ alone, sola Christo. To all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace, that is by his grace alone, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the atoning sacrifice in his blood through faith to, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the very present time so that we would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus to the glory of God alone. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, to the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, he is of Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law by our faith. This text has a completely different tone than what we've been looking at. It's a huge turn that we see. But this is right here what changed the course of Luther's life and in effect changed the course of biblical doctrine for many people and has for, almost, for a half a millennium at this point. That it is by grace alone, through Christ alone, and faith in him alone, and not of our works, lest any man should boast. I'm thankful for the scripture and it's also just the power of being able to reach back through history and see that it's not just fads and trends that guide our faith. It is the solid foundation of the doctrine of the truth of God's word that guides us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the purity of it. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you for the promise in it. Thank you for the correction that we find in it as well. But thank you as well that even in 2021, as we see, as we see things changing around us all the time, Father, we know that your word never fails. Your goodness never fails. Your mercy never fails. Your love never fails because you never fail. I pray this morning you would speak to us captivate us by your truth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Let me just say this. I'm very happy that after about five Sundays straight of like, you're a sinner, you're rotten, you're dirty, you know, all this stuff, we finally get some good news, right? All right it's been five weeks of like, y'all are dirty, rotten sinners. Just get it through your thick skull. And so finally, our text opens up with these two words of hope. After five weeks of humanity is broken, humanity is sinful, humanity is dead, humanity is doomed. No matter how hard you try, you'll never be good enough. We finally get some good news. And it all hinges on these two words, but now. But now. 
I love what John Phillips says. He says, mark well those butts of the Bible. Go ahead and snicker at that if you need to. Just as great doors swing on simple hinges, dramatic changes in scripture hinge on this very common word, but now. Apart from being the spark that lit the flame in Martin Luther's heart and being something that we look at, we have noticed that this passage becomes, has been widely noted to be the most concise explanation of the gospel anywhere in scripture. Martin Luther said it was the chief point and the very central piece and place of the epistle and even of the whole Bible. Leon Morris, another commentator, said possibly the most important single paragraph that has ever been penned by humanity in history is this passage right here. Another commentary I studied said that this is a wonderful compression of all theology that you could ever study and ever learn in your life. Just like all of human history hinges on Jesus Christ, all of human history, before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, everything hinges on Jesus Christ. Everything within scripture hinges on this gospel that we see in this passage. And all of it hinges on this little phrase, but now. It turned from we are all in sin and all without hope to but now there is hope. And there is hope in Jesus Christ. He spent so much effort, Paul did, for these past three chapters trying to get us to see that we need salvation. Now he turns the corner to the marvelous light of the gospel that tells us how we can have salvation. And that's the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. That it took three chapters for us to get it through our thick skulls, our pagan souls, our self-righteous souls, that we need Jesus. And now it takes just a paragraph to show us how we can get to him. It could have been just the opposite, that God created all these hoops that we have to jump through to be a Christian, but God made it very simple. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So this morning, I want to look at how it doesn't take a complex system of works and rituals. The gospel simply requires saving faith in Jesus Christ. If we want to be saved, it's not something that we earn somehow over time. It's not something that we just say, hey, I guess I always have been. Salvation comes at a moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And I ask you this morning as we begin our message, do you have that moment in your life where you said, I trust nothing else. I cast aside my faith in anything else and place it in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The first thing that we see in our text this morning is that salvation must be received by faith. Salvation must be received by faith. If you spend any real amount of time at Graceway or at this church, it's going to seem like a really obvious statement to say salvation must be received by faith. How many of you thought, no duh, pastor, when I said that? right? It's something that we say every single Sunday because it's the foundational core to this message of hope and salvation that, and the gospel that we preach every service. Every single Sunday as we come to the end of the message, I come to this place where we say and where we discuss the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior and the only way to be saved is to place our faith in Him plus nothing and minus nothing. Salvation comes through faith. That all the work for salvation that needs to be done has already been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, what he meant when it, before he took his last breath and he died and he committed his spirit to the Lord, when he said it is finished, he meant all the work that needed to be done was now done. That you and I don't need to finish the job. You and I must just trust the job that's already been done by Jesus Christ. It is by faith alone. And it's important that we understand this because we've all sinned. Every last one of us have sinned. And because of our sin, we're all condemned by the law. There's that bad news again, right? 
man, we've been talking about this for five weeks. Hopefully we've gotten this, right? But we've all sinned and we're all condemned by the law. I'm not going to belabor the point, but look at verse number 19. We didn't look at this this morning. It was in our text last week, but look at verse number 19 again. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Notice these two phrases, every mouth may be shut. You know what that means? When we stand before God, we don't have a defense to give. It's like so much evidence of our sin, so much evidence of our wickedness is given that we're just left speechless like, I, I, I don't have an excuse. So many times we saw that phrase, without excuse. Remember as we were moving our way through chapter 2 and 3? And then we see this other, this other phrase, the whole world is subject to God's judgment. That means that everyone, everyone will stand before God and everyone is condemned before God because God is righteous and we are not. So everyone is in some serious trouble. Every one of us. It doesn't matter what our heritage is. It doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter how many times we went to church. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is we're all condemned before God. We're all sinners. Every one of us. Romans, Romans 3.23 in our text says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all is a real little word, but it encompasses everything. All have sinned. You say, but, but, but wait a second. I, I'm not as bad a sinner as this other person over here, but we're still sinners and all sin leads to the same place and that is death and separation from God. So everyone has sinned and because of that sin, there is no excuse that we can make. We have all sinned and we're guilty of missing the mark of God's righteousness. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. I've used this illustration a couple of times before, but we get our word sin from the field of archery and from the medieval world, from the ancient world of archery. My daughter, my youngest daughter is doing the archery team at school and um, she's really getting into it a lot. Um, and her, uh, her coach has basically uh, said she sends pictures and stuff. I mean, she's never touched a bow and arrow before other than starting, than when she started to, be art, to, to do archery now. And our coach, two practices in, sent a picture of her hitting and just missing the bullseye just by like that much. And I'm like, oh, great. So my daughter is like a natural born assassin. That's wonderful. That's good. She's got this natural. And the coach just keeps marveling over the fact that she's got this natural ability as an archer. And I'm like, that's great. So I've been really, really, really nice to Noel lately. Okay, um, and uh, she's like, "Hey, you know, when can I get a bow?" And I'm thinking, "You can just use the one at school. You ain't bringing that home." <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so in archery, in the ancient, in the medieval days, when they would have archery competitions, they would do it like elimination style. Everybody would stand up and they would shoot at the target. And you would move on if you hit the target because the targets were not like these big things where you, it, you hit yellow and red and all that stuff like it is now. It was just a small little target. And if you hit it, you continued to move on. And they just kept on going until the only, there was only one left who hit it every single time. And that's kind of how you won. And so what would happen is that if you missed and you were eliminated, the judge would stand behind you and see if you hit the target or not. And if you hit the target or if you did not hit the target, the judge would raise his hand and say sin. And that meant they missed the mark. And so they are therefore eliminated from that. And if, you, and if they did it squid game style, they were then, you know, taken out. And I'm just teasing. If you don't know what squid game is, don't worry about it, okay? Reference of relevance that probably flew over our heads, all right? But so you would be eliminated from that competition, all right? So now imagine this, and this is what we do. So sin literally means that we have this target of perfection that God has laid before us. In the Old Testament, it was God's law, this target of perfection, and nobody could hit it. Everybody was shooting with broken arrows that couldn't hit the target. Every single one. To put it lightly, there was no one who wasn't eliminated by God's perfection. Every one of us have sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we've all missed the mark, and it's not even close how bad we've missed the mark. 
So this is our state before God. have been eliminated. None of us have an arrow to shoot that is straight. None of us can hit the target because God is so righteous and we are so unrighteous. So what did we do? We began to try to manipulate the law. We began to find other ways to try to justify ourselves. Now imagine an archer comes home from the tournament and his wife is there and says, honey, how did you do? And he said, oh, it's great. I did a great job. I hit the target every single time. And she's like, so you won? Where's your reward? And he goes, no, I, 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 I didn't win per se. I got eliminated after the first round. She's like, but I thought you said you hit the target every time. He said, yeah, I did. I found this way for me to be the world's greatest archer. You see, after I was eliminated, I went out in the woods and I found my, I found my arrow. And what I did was I just drew, I just pulled out some spray paint. And I just drew a little bull, red bullseye right around where the arrow landed. And I hit the heart, I hit the target every single time. And she looks at him like my mother told me I would marry an idiot because you can't just move the target to make yourself good. And that's what many times we try to do in our human reason. We try to say, God's target is impossible to reach, so I'm just going to develop my own target. I'm going to develop my own definition of what is good. But to see, the problem is that God never moves the target. The problem is that we're still eliminated. It doesn't matter how good we made ourselves feel. We're still eliminated. We need a straight arrow. And that straight arrow to hit God's target is not our works. That straight arrow that hits God's target is faith. It is by faith that we come to know God. He says in, in verse number 20 of, of, of chapter 3, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. The target and our constant missing of the target reveals our need for someone that could take us to the target. Just like our text said last week in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so faith is our only path to righteousness. Look at verse number 21 and 22. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Suckle that, underline that, highlight that, get a tattoo of that, whatever you need to do. But remember this, the righteousness of God is only attained through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the only way we hit the target is through faith in Jesus Christ. God's standard is not going to change. God's standard will always be perfection and none of us reach that on our own. It is by faith that we come to him. We cannot trust ourselves. We can't trust our own righteousness. We can't trust our works. We can't trust our religion. We can't trust anything but God's word. And we can trust that God will save. We must have faith in Jesus Christ. God has graciously given us a path to freedom. And it is through faith in him. And that's where I kind of buried the lead for the next point. Faith in what? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the second point is that faith... Or Jesus must be the object of our faith. We have to have faith if we're to be saved. But faith in what? Faith in Jesus. It's not enough just to have faith. Because we can have faith in a lot of things. A lot of people had faith that Kentucky would come back and win last night. But that didn't work out, right? A lot of people have faith about a lot of different things. But the only thing that can come through and the only thing that will save us is having faith in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. Is your faith in the proper place. Is the object of your faith Jesus Christ? Because if it's not, then we're in trouble because we've spent the past five weeks looking at what other people put faith in and all of them fall short, right? 
Some people put faith in their own humanity. We put faith in other people. We put faith in the law. We put faith in how good we can be and how that maybe we can just do more good than bad and maybe God will let me. And we put faith in everything. But Jesus, but the word of God tells us that it will only be through faith in Jesus Christ. The goodness of God comes to us only through faith in Jesus Christ. Over the next several verses, Paul can't stop mentioning Jesus. It's interesting. All right, now, if you go back to the very beginning of Romans, Paul talks about Jesus, but he talks about him in the very introduction. He talks about Christ Jesus and the gospel of Christ. After verse number 17, which is our key verse, talking about the gospel in chapter 1, Jesus is just not in the picture anymore. It's all about our sin and our brokenness and the fallen state of humanity. Jesus is not mentioned until this verse here in verse number 21 and 22. And then it's almost like Paul can't stop mentioning Jesus. Look at what it says in verse number 24. They are justified freely by his or by Jesus' grace or by God's grace through the redemption that is in who? That is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3 verse 25. God presented him, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins of the previously committed. Verse number 26. God presented him, Jesus Christ, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in, guess who? Jesus Christ. Jesus must be the object of our faith. There is no mistaking where our faith must be placed. It is in Jesus. And here's what we have to get as Christians today in 2021. Your faith, my faith, will only be real if it is placed in Jesus Christ. You can't place it in a person. You can't place it in a preacher. You can't place it in a party. You can't place it in a church. You have to place your faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. God's righteousness is only found in him. It's, only, it's our only position in, in Jesus that makes us righteous in God's eyes. Now, it's important that we understand the order of this. His righteousness is found in Jesus. If you mark your Bible, circle that word in Jesus. Our faith is in Jesus. When we put our faith in Christ, we are then brought into Christ. So that gives us our position of being in Jesus that makes us righteous in God's eyes. So it's, it's vital that we understand this because this is telling us that a righteous person, it's, this is not telling us that a righteous person will place their faith in Jesus Christ. It's telling us that a person is not righteous until they do place their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? You say, well, I'm a good person, so it just made sense for me to be, be a follower of Jesus. No, we are not good in God's eyes until we are in Christ. And every one of us are born outside of Christ. So, but I was born in a Christian home. I, I was born going to church my whole life. I've just always known this way about me, right? Doesn't matter. When we are born, we are all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And it is only when we come to faith in Jesus Christ that we are placed in Jesus Christ. Righteous people don't just find their way to Christ. People in Jesus find themselves made righteous in Christ. See, this is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. And when I say imputed, it just means the righteousness of Jesus is given it to us at the moment we get saved. So when we stand before God one day as believers to be judged, he's not going to say, oh, you received Jesus, so you did the right thing. He's going to say, you are safe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because you are his. It's not going to be about Jesus judging us. Oh, you did the right thing by coming to Jesus. It will be, you are righteous because you are in him. You are covered and you are immersed in the righteousness of Christ. That phrase, in Jesus, is doctrinally important when it comes to Christ. And here's the question. When it comes to Jesus, are you in Christ 
Or are you on the outside just looking in thinking, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay that I'm just close enough. I've known about him. I've been around him my whole life. Are you in Christ? Here's that been that moment where you surrendered yourself and said, Jesus, bring me into your righteousness. We often use that phrase, I ask Jesus into my heart. And I, and, I, and I understand the sentiment because we have to give our hearts to Christ. But the truest way to describe that is I ask to be received into his righteousness. See, asking Jesus in my heart means that I made the initial, the initial move. God made the initial move by making his righteousness available. I ask to be received into his righteousness. See, justification is another word that we see in verse number 24. We are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of Theo words here, right? Justification, atonement, and, and, and all of these things. So what does justified mean? This is the word that Martin Luther said launched the Protestant Reformation 504 years ago today. This, this idea of justification. Because the Roman Catholic Church at that point had taught that justification was actually a progressive thing. That you place faith in Jesus Christ and then over time, based upon the things that you did and by the sacraments that you followed, God began to justify you. Began to partially take away your sin and you were only partially in Jesus. That you only inched your way more into the righteousness of God, the more righteous things that you do. So by doing the sacraments enough and doing enough confession and penance, then God would declare you good enough to be justified. And if not, then buy these indulgences and it'll go ahead and set the debt. But Luther saw through this, pa this passage that justification cannot be a process. Justification is something that happens simultaneously the moment we place faith in Christ. So with faith in Jesus comes salvation, eternal security, and also total justification. It means that he covers our sin and his righteousness makes it as though we'd never sinned before. He covers our sin. We are not systemically or systematically justified. It is an immediate proclamation all at once. Think about this. How many of you like courtroom dramas? Law and Order. Are there any other courtroom? Perry Mason. That was a long time ago, right? Um, what happens when you go to court? <laughs> Some of you have maybe, maybe gone to real court in your life. I don't know. Um, you keep that to yourself. But, um, but <laughs> or, you know, tell us. It's, it's church, right? Uh, please, tell us. Um, no, if <laughs> you... This is, I didn't even have a donut, and this is where we're at, okay? Um, but imagine you're at court, and you are the defendant. And they say, rise, and we'll read the verdict. All the evidence has been laid out. Everything is gone, and the jury stands up and says, we find the defendant not guilty. At that moment, what happens legally? At that moment, you are completely and totally exonerated. All the charges against you are dropped. It has been found that you are innocent, all right? You are totally and completely innocent and you walk out as a free man or a free woman. The judge doesn't stand up and say, okay, the jury has declared you to be innocent. So here's what you need to do. You need to go through the seven, seven step process and then we will make sure that all the charges are dropped. No, the moment you are declared innocent, you are innocent. There is nothing more to be done. This is what happens in our justification the moment we are saved. When I call upon Jesus Christ and I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I am completely justified. I am declared innocent through his righteousness and there is nothing more that I must do to be more innocent than I am at that very moment that Jesus Christ has given me his perfection. This is what justification means. And he says that I am not just justified, but I am justified freely. Meaning I don't even have to pay the lawyer fee. Jesus even paid the fee. My faith in Jesus Christ gives me justification. 
The next word that we see, that big word we see is redemption in verse number 24. It says, it mentions a redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To redeem something means to compensate for something or to buy something. We think of redemption as compensation a lot of times for our bad faults or our bad aspects. So God compensated for our bad faults or our bad aspects, our sins, through Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the debt for our sins. He compensated. He paid the wages of sin, which is death, for us to have eternal life. We couldn't redeem ourselves by our works. We couldn't redeem ourselves by our good deeds. We couldn't muster enough righteousness on our own. We couldn't hit the target. So Jesus stepped in our place and hit the bullseye for us. And we say, I'm with him. I'm with him. It is through his ability to hit the target. Not only can he hit the target, he is the target. We say, I'm with him. See, that is redemption. He has bought us back. He has redeemed us. He has purchased our pardon. He has purchased my justification. And through that, we have what we know as atonement. Only atonement is found in Jesus Christ as well. In the King James, we see this word rendered as something called propitiation. That's in verse number 25. It shows us just how God redeems us. It says, God presented him, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood that is received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So he is our atoning sacrifice. So what does it mean to be atoned? Now for the Jewish reader that reads the book of Romans here, they go all the way back into the Old Testament days when there were blood sacrifices done at the temple. They would understand because there was a day set aside as a national day of feasting, a national day of observance called the Day of Atonement. When a lamb would be brought forth to the high priest, and, and let's, let's personalize it a little bit because there was also family atonement that was done when a lamb or a ram would be brought and they would bring this lamb, this perfect spotless lamb, and they would bring it to the high priest and the high priest would have all the family members lay their hands on that lamb. And as they laid their hands on that lamb, it was a symbolic passing of all of their sin and all of their wickedness onto that lamb. And then, the kids aren't in here right now, so we'll just go ahead and say what happens. The priest would then take a knife or a dagger and would then bleed the sheep out on the altar of sacrifice. And it would be a symbol of the fact that all of the sins that I had committed had been passed upon this innocent lamb and that blood that has been shed is the currency of forgiveness and all of my sins have now been covered and my debt of sin has been satisfied through the atonement of that lamb. And as I walk out of the temple, I walk out and my family completely free and completely justified of all of my sin. This was a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus Christ on the cross. Because John the Baptist in the Gospels, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away, which atones for the sins of the world. In Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we find that Jesus Christ is the one who atones for our sins. I couldn't bring offerings. I couldn't bring a table or something. If I was, if I was, a, um, if I was a carpenter, I couldn't bring a beautiful table to the altar of sacrifice and say, here, I, I have given my very best piece of furniture to you, Lord God, so please let this cover my sins. It didn't cut it. There had to be a blood sacrifice of a sacrificial atoning lamb. Why? Because it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that sets us free. It is the atonement that is found in Jesus Christ that sets us free. I can't be atoned any other way. You want to know why? Because if I could be atoned by my skills, if I could be atoned through money, then that means that God is not fair. Because some people are born with better skills than others. Let's just be honest. Some people are born into richer families. Some people are born into better positions. God is fair to us because all of us are born dead in our trespasses and sins. 
And the distance to Jesus, the distance to atonement is faith. And all of us have that same distance to travel and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We sing that song sometimes, Jesus Messiah, right? He became sin who knew no sin we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. His love so amazing. He's our Messiah. He became sin for us. Even though he didn't know sin. So we could become his righteousness. Straight from this passage. Right? This is atonement. Here's how Martin Luther put it over 500 years ago. All the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the persecutor. You will become the blasphemer and cruel oppressor. You will become David the adulterer and the rapist. You will become Adam, that sinner which did eat the fruit in paradise. To put it in our context today, you'll become the husband that neglected or abused his family. You'll become the immoral woman who wrecked someone else's marriage. You'll become the drug addict. You'll become the teenager that lied to its parents. You'll become the hypocrite living a double life. You'll become the proud, the selfish, the apathetic. He became all of those things that we are, that he never was in his righteousness and died for them so that we could be made innocent of them. That's how good our Savior is. This is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his blood. Jesus is the object not just for our salvation. He's the object for all of our salvation. Doesn't matter where you are. If you're in central Kentucky in 2021, or if you're in Germany in 1517, or if you're in the farthest corner of the world years ago, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. The only one. When he says all, he means all. There is no distinction, verse 22 says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are all justified freely by his grace. Jesus is the only object for all of us to be saved. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. So you can look wherever you want to. You can look as long as you want to in search of the path of salvation and to God's righteousness. But if you look outside of Jesus Christ, you'll never find it. It's only through Jesus Christ. You'll continue to fire that arrow towards God's righteousness and continue to miss it. It's only through Jesus our faith must be in him. And lastly, as we close out this morning, we glorify God with our faith. Now that we have found salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, what do we do with that? Now that we've been saved, what do we do? Well, we glorify God with that faith. See, opponents or skeptics of Christianity don't understand why God would make salvation available so freely through faith. It's like, this is just too simple. This is just too easy. It creates a lot of hypocrites, and, and, and it's right. A free salvation creates a lot of hypocrites. This is why we have to understand that salvation may be free to us, but it was purchased by someone. You came in this morning and had free donuts. But donut days just didn't give them to us for free. They had to be purchased. There was a price to be paid. See, we set you up for that one, didn't we? All right, no, I'm just teasing. That just hit me right now. This is perfect. All right? 
The gift of salvation had to be purchased and had to be given. It was given by God. He gave his only begotten son so that we could have salvation given to us for free. Salvation by grace through faith just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And here's what it does. It separates Christianity from every other religion that you find in the world. Here's what John Philip says. He says this. He says, It is here that God's plan of salvation parts company with every devised plan in the human heart. No matter how divergent the doctrines of the world's other religions, they all have one major thing in common. All and one affirm that, creation, or that salvation or redemption must be earned. That we must do something to merit favor of God. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with its revolutionary concept of salvation by grace through faith alone sets Christianity sublimely and uniquely apart from all other systems. Only God comes to man in Christianity. In all other religion, we have to work ourselves to God. But only in Christianity do you find that God humbled himself, became a man, and came to us and paid a debt that we could not pay, but that we all owed. Salvation by faith should keep us humble. It's like I said earlier. If salvation was through anything other than faith, there would be a lot of boasting going on. We would be going around saying, well, you know, it was just a given that I was going to place faith in Christ because, you know, I had all of these advantages. Or if I could buy my way to heaven as well. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, no, it's not hard for me to do that. Salvation by faith should keep us humble. We will never be more humble than when we crawl to the foot of the cross. Because when we, fall, when we crawl to the foot of the cross, we see the carnage that our sin has brought. If we don't come to the understanding of how much our sin has cost, we'll never come to the understanding of just how good Jesus is. The carnage of the cross makes us all humble. Because to be saved, we have to admit that we're sinners, that we're broken, that we're undone. We must admit that we can't earn righteousness. We can't earn salvation on our own. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 30. Look at our text. After laying all of this out about it being by grace through faith in Jesus alone, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Remember the other chapters where he was talking about the self-righteous, talking about how good they were and how that was going to get them to heaven? He says, where are you, where's your boasting now? It's all by grace through faith. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, by the law of faith. Or conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, that God is the God of Jews only, is he the God of Gentiles too? He's basically saying, where's your boasting? There's nothing to boast about because everything that was done for salvation was done by Jesus Christ. It wasn't done by you. It wasn't done by me. It was done by him. Paul's like, look, if none of us could do anything to earn our salvation, and it's all by the grace of God alone through faith and alone in Christ alone, then none of us should be boasting about how good we are, who is better at all this Christianity stuff. Because Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not of your works, so that no one can go around boasting. See, if it was about what we did, church would be a lot different. We wouldn't be up here singing, God, you're so good, or the goodness of God. We would be singing about how faithful we were. We would be telling about everybody how good we were. But because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's not about us at all. It leaves us out of the mix. The only thing that we can do is place our faith in Christ. See, no one deserves credit for our salvation but Jesus Christ. No one. You may have been raised your whole life in a Christian home by Christian parents, but that didn't save you. They couldn't save you. Only Jesus could save you. Jesus should get the credit for your salvation. You may have the best preacher in the world. I'm going to stop right there for you to amen. 
All right, no. Who cuts the word straight as an arrow every single Sunday and gives the gospel every time you're at church, but that preacher can't save you. That Sunday school teacher can't save you. That discipleship partner can't save you. Jesus alone saves you. Jesus alone is worthy of the credit. You may be the most tender-hearted person in the world, and the first time you heard the gospel, you gave in and you surrendered to him, but you didn't save you. Just because somebody else may be a tougher case than you doesn't make you a better person. Jesus saves us. No one else does. The faith of the saved will produce faithful works to glorify God. And as we close out this morning and head to our time of response, this is important for us to all grasp and understand. Paul, verse number 31, Paul returns to those who want to play devil's advocate with him and say, but, 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 but what about, but what about, but what about? He can already tell that people are thinking, well then, if I will just have faith in Jesus and get my get out of hell free card, I'll live any way that I want. He says, no, those of you who've been redeemed will uphold the law of God through your faith in him. Here's the deal. I don't obey God and do good things to earn my redemption. I obey God and I do good things because I've been redeemed by a God who didn't have any reason to redeem me other than he chose me. I obey someone who wants me so much that he gave his own son. I don't obey to be in Christ. I obey because I am in Christ. And through that, God is glorified. So the question this morning that I have for you today, same question I ask every single Sunday. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Do you know him as your Savior? And when I say do you know him as your Savior, I mean do you know him I'm not asking, do you do all these cool things? Do you go to church? Do you, you know, do you do all these things the right way? I'm asking, do you know Jesus as your Savior? And we can't come to know Jesus as our Savior until he lets us know how bad we are as a sinner. Have you come to the foot of the cross? Have you seen the carnage of your sin? Have you considered the atoning sacrifice that he paid for you? Like I said, this is the beautiful side of the book of Romans. Because we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of grace through faith, we can have salvation. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.